Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones, from two cultures, two allied health fields, offering two very different perspectives. Yet with a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Episode four, sensory versus behavior. Do you see what I see? Early learning. Hello, everybody, OTs, ABAs, OTAs, RBT students, therapists, educators, skeptics, yet potential collaborators. Welcome to our fourth episode of Sensory and Behaviour Related to Early Learning. Last week, we covered early beginnings and reviewed a paper on early feeding interventions for addressing failure to thrive. Today, we continue our look into how humans develop from birth and how OTs and behaviour analysts use their science to intervene with early challenges. We take a look at the sensory behavioural aspects of early motor development, learning in babies, touch on classical and operant conditioning, provide a greater understanding of tactile defensiveness, habituation, desensitization, all to accelerate early learning and therapeutic outcomes. Oh, that's a lot, lots of terms, which will all be available in our glossary of terms in the resources if you are part of our Facebook group. Thanks, Adini. And this week, our shout out goes out to Dr. Kimberly Behrens, a science educator and the founder of Fit Learning, who has recently launched her first book, Blind Spots, which is an insight into what is wrong in the US education system and how to fix it through the use of behavioral science. In her book, Dr. Behrens looks at the technology of teaching that's developed over the last 80 years to address the crisis in the US education system. Dr. Behrens, my mentor and supervisor, uh, has dedicated nearly three decades of her life to transforming children's lives from children with severe and challenging behaviour to more recently a successful entrepreneur who she's helping with his written skills, profoundly influenced by Og Lindsley and his goals of bringing accountability to teachers through the use of precise measurement using standard acceleration charts. Future episodes will look at how anyone teaching anything can use charts to change the way you teach, impact your students uh, profoundly, and have a lot of fun in the process. Brilliant. Ditto to all of the above, Mandy. I am truly honoured to have met Dr. Kim and to be part of this amazing organisation at Fit Learning, which was really a catalyst to so many amazing events in my life. Not only has Dr. Kim through Fit Learning transformed my son's academic trajectory, but Dr. Kim has been integral in influencing, you know, data collection and bringing it to me as an OT clinician. Uh, She was the one who introduced me to precision teaching and simple charting techniques, which I know can truly benefit the OT community. So hats off to Dr. Kim. Great. So let's get started. Aditi, we're three episodes here. This is our fourth podcast. How's everything going for you and how are you feeling? Oh, goodness me. Well, it does a bit of a roller coaster ride, Mandy. You know, we, we start on a topic for an episode and we sort of have this back and forth banter. And they are definite moments where I just go, Mandy, just go take some data. I need a sensory break, that sort of thing. I just, <laughs> I've just had it because it's so hard for me sometimes to wrap my head around your more linear view of things versus my more spiral, I guess, perspective on things. And I'm also very mindful full of trigger words, which is something we both sort of discovered this time. They're phrases that come up in our conversations. And, you know, so like sensory integration is a huge trigger for most ABA therapists. Oh, yeah. 
or like classical conditioning or punishment even. And data collection is definitely a big trigger for OTs. And so what I realized is these trigger words often evokes a bit of an uncomfortable space and emotion, possibly because of my previous experiences or associations. I notice it. And when we're talking, I notice that it creates a bit of a glitch in our conversations where momentarily I sort of stop listening. And I really wanted to figure out how we could combat that. Do you think that's true, Mandy, for you? Absolutely, Adeni, yes. And as you say, um, each of us and everyone listening here has a history around their experience with ABAs and OTs. We make judgments, you know, based on our experience. And there are certain words that evoke an emotional response in us, you know, depending on what we're exposed to when those, you know, those words were used. But I think we, you know, we've developed something that is workable. Do you do you think that's right, Aditi, and how to deal with that emotion as it comes up? I do, actually. You know, I think it's about creating a space and shelving our issues. So to combat this trigger, which is inevitably going to happen, and, you know, as it creates a real roadblock to our collaboration, we came up with a pause button. So Mandy and I both evoke the right to or invoke the right to pause the conversation to address our triggers. What we really are doing there is creating a mindful space an acknowledgement to ourselves momentarily, and then letting it go, letting it pass. The aim here is to pause to ponder and not let it paralyze the conversation and listening to each other. So you will hear us using that throughout our conversations. And I encourage you to think about using that pause button when you're collaborating with other disciplines, because it might uh, actually help speed the conversation. Yeah, it's a, quite a challenge we took on, isn't it? Uh, recording a podcast on opposite sides of the world on a highly controversial area of practice, two very different fields, behavioural analytic interventions and then occupational therapy. Do you think it, we're brave, altruistic, or we're just a little bit crazy? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm brave and altruistic. I think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, on that note, on the note of craziness, you know, we did want to have a little disclaimer here, or at least I did, and that is my background initially was, you know, corporate finance. I moved into this field because of my daughter's journey. I have studied and worked in this field now for 16 years and travelled the world and spent lots of time in different programs before I found my way to fit learning and precision teaching. So I have had quite a journey, particularly into the field of autism and severe and challenging behaviours. But I am what I call a scientist practitioner and I am not an expert in everything. I, you know, know enough, to, I think, to do extremely good quality work with the clients that I work with. But in this episode in particular, we really delve into areas that researchers spent a lot of time researching and, you know, they have a very, very good knowledge of these areas. So I am just putting a little disclaimer in here, Daddy, that I don't profess to be an expert in everything and that I would love to hear from anyone if I have, you know, overstepped the mark or, or overgeneralized things because we are taking on a very big topic here and, you know, incredibly interesting how learning unfolds in babies and beyond. But, yeah, I'm just putting it out there that we won't get everything perfect. 
Brilliant. Well, we never told each other it was going to be easy, Mandy, but I don't think we thought it was going to be this hard either. <laughs> However, we both acknowledge that it's worth it. It truly is. So let's uh, let's get chatting here. Yes. We're going to look at the account of earliest learning experiences in infants, and we're planning to look at how ABAs and OTs view the learning process, because... This is really fundamental to each of our approaches and how we intervene. And if something has gone askew in learning, when there's a you know physical problem or challenge, or even how to teach something functional to a very young child. Feeding was one of the issues in our last episode. And today we're going to talk about a case study of a nine-month-old preemie baby who's not quite engaging or exploring her environment actively. So before we delve there, though, I do want to clarify a myth that surfaced lately. Do ABAs only work with ASD clients? That is definitely a myth. Aditi. Some of our earliest work in the field of behavior analysis was actually in psychiatric hospitals with patients with schizophrenia, but you'll find behavior analysts anywhere that socially meaningful behavior shows up, everywhere from uh, eating in infancy to sleep disorders, excessive crying to education to habit reversal for dietary problems and drug addiction into the field of sport to the behaviour of employees and organisations, safety in the workplace, training parents, my particular area of passion. I have done work with acquired brain injury and brain injury following uh, cancer interventions. There's a lot of our field does work in the areas of depression, anxiety, pain management, and, you know, more recently in the area of acceptance and commitment therapy or what you know, some practitioners might call mindfulness, we are, you know, addressing how to live a fuller and happier life. So anywhere where you want to increase or reduce behavior, you will find behavior analysts. Obviously, its effectiveness in the area of developmental disabilities, in particular autism, is very well known because of some large case studies and also some funding that has attached because of its effectiveness in teaching a broad range of behaviours, everything from language to self-care skills, sleeping, eating and toileting. And those behaviours in particular can be uh, challenging in the field of autism and learning delays. So we are well known in that field. And while I learned about behaviour analysis as a result of my youngest daughter with autism, I was quickly able to apply that science to all other areas of my life, including my other daughter, who, having learned a lot of behavioural science uh, in her exposure to it while observing her sister during therapy and in all sorts of different appointments, she would often call out to me, Mum, are you using escape extinction with me? So she became, you know, quite the behaviour analyst herself and today I'm very proud that she is uh, one day going to call qualify as a, a behavioral lawyer and what an, what, an, what, an, what an exciting world it is if you're a lawyer and you understand why people do what they do as well. Oh, priceless. No. How quickly do our children figure us out, eh? You know, it works with husbands too, you know. I dare say shamelessly, I have used differential reinforcement instead of nagging my partner to take the trash out or make Mm -hmm. the first pot of coffee in the morning. And it works. Although I have to admit, my husband's caught on a bit. He's, um, he's, I noticed he used it on me the other day and I was like, what? Really? No, no, no. This is just something I know, not you. So understanding the science of human behavior is applicable to all aspects and so many aspects of life. And actually, Mandy, that's one of the reasons I opted to do it during my doctorate, to take that certification course, because I was like, you know, behavior is everywhere. And if I know more, I can definitely do more, right? Knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. So 
Let's take a look at the very beginning. What does early learning look like? Yeah, well, that's a good and a very big question, Aditi. Let's, the plan today is that we're going to look at where learning starts, how an OT or a behaviour analyst might account for developmental milestones, for instance, whether a behaviour is learned or unlearned, and whether it's within or outside, outside the skin. So I'm very excited to get this very big topic and going. So Dede, let's start with what is an OT's perspective of how we learn from birth, what we're born with, and then how we develop as human beings? Well, development in the OT context is a very dynamic process, an interplay of nature and nurture. From birth on, we grow and learn because of our biology or, or our sensory motor abilities, which enable us to interact in the socially and physically stimulating aspects of the environment. So let's take an infant right out of the womb. There is no previous learning. They simply take information from their body functions, which is motor and sensory, through this multi-sensory experience, engage and learn from from their environment, or in some cases they don't interact with their environment, which is often when they're referred to us in OT. So how does this compare to a behavioural account of right after birth, Mandy? Perhaps the most significant difference that I see when I'm looking at the literature of occupational therapy and ABA is that the field of behaviour analysis looks at an individual and their specific histories and the current environment that they're exposed to as opposed to a developmental approach of accounting for learning. And in particular, what is pleasant or unpleasant to that individual, again, on their specific history of interactions with their environment and not on some assumption of what might be causing the behaviour. So you'll see methods developed to account for learning in one subject and not assume that this applies to all babies, for instance. Most important in all of early learning, of course, is the baby's interaction with their primary carer and how these interactions shape development or learning. In other words, in behaviour analytic terms, we don't use age as a metric to account for development. Aditi, what are some developmental, early developmental milestones that an OT might consider, for instance? Well, OT does take into account the environmental aspects, but the starting point is generally based on a delay in developmental milestones. Motorically, the presence of reaching, grasping, sitting with general expected time frame. You know, the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales is used as a national standardized assessment tool to provide separate gross and fine motor scores. OTs and PTs both use it for children from birth through five years of age. And it has several subtests, uh, measures motor abilities like reflexes, stationary, locomotion, object manipulation, grasping, visual motor integration. And it's really used to estimate a child's motor competence relative to peers compare fine motor and gross motor composite scores to determine if there is a discrepancy and plan educational and therapeutic intervention, evaluate progress, and is really a research tool. So every six months or so, I might redo this assessment to kind of see where that child is at and how much progress they've made. Yeah, what's been found in the behavioural literature is that these developmental milestones can be rapidly accelerated with intervention. And accordingly, you know, we consider that it's not an age that something must occur by, but the opportunity to contact reinforcement or practice of those behaviours with feedback or what we would call operant learning or operant conditioning. Experimenters working with babies as young as you know, one to four days, we're able to teach them to turn their head, for instance, in one direction by providing 
talking and speaking after that behavior, the provision of a rattle after the head turn and increase that rate of head turning even as early as one day old. And then later reverse that by not reinforcing or withdrawing the reinforcer for that behavior. So I guess behavior analysts believe that things unfold by exposure to the environment and by consequences delivered to those behaviors. So I can agree with about three quarters of your statement there, because yes, we too believe that developmental milestones can be accelerated by changes in the environment. And that is exactly precisely the role of early therapeutic intervention and why most of early intervention programs exist. For OTs, the developmental milestones serve as a general guideline, a roadmap, if you will. They aren't a necessary a benchmark because we know that every child has their own timeline and trajectory, and many typical children don't necessarily follow these milestones to a T, and they do fine. So, for example, um, often a baby might go from sitting to walking and skip crawling altogether. And it doesn't mean there's a problem, but in certain cases there could be a deficit. So when assessing a client, we tend to have a very holistic view. Again, there's that spiral thinking. So we consider body functions, environmental, social, cultural factors. So again, we agree with some aspects that interactions are a key measure in overall typical development, but we're not trained to take that deep of a look into reinforcement and early learning. Uh, So that could certainly be insightful for us. Yeah, I guess this is where the two approaches of our fields, behavior analysis and OT, start to show some fundamental differences in underpinnings. So I think, Aditi, let's start with what we can both agree on. I think we can both agree that babies both in utero and after birth have behaviors in place that have needed little or no prior learning other than perhaps what happens in utero because there is learning there too and lots of research is underway to look at that. But for instance, the rooting reflex, which is elicited when the side of the baby's mouth is touched, or the suck reflex, which occurs when the roof of the baby's mouth is touched. So however, right from birth, a baby begins to adapt to its environment and learning starts immediately from a behavioralist perspective. So how would an OT differentiate, I guess, unlearned from learned behaviours? Okay, I'm going to give it a go. So we would classify primitive reflexes as unlearned behaviors. So the automatic responses that are essential for survival and are present at birth, sucking, swallowing, breathing, and random movements. These responses are performed automatically via the brainstem and spinal cord without any volition. And they're quite essential for early learning and development. So primarily the reflexes Uh, which are present up to various points of the baby's first year, would be unlearned responses. The baby performs these reflexive movement responses over and over again, which really assess the brain to develop. And as the brain matures, these reflexes become what we call integrated or are no longer active or present. And learned behavior sort of takes over from that perspective and can occur alongside these reflexes and would be then influenced by, like you mentioned, pleasurable or painful experiences at birth. So again, it's not as linear for us. You know, we are looking at it from all angles. Gosh, there's a lot in there in just in what you just said, Aditi. Uh, I didn't even have to use the pause button yet. 
Um, but <laughs> but we could go a lot deeper into this subject, right? But let's just clarify how the science of behavior differentiates unlearned behaviors from other behaviors. I think we'll have to delve into the behavior analyst explanation of learning through both respondent and operant conditioning and look at how an OT accounts for that process. Where do you think we should start? Well, I think we agree on early reflexes, so let's just, you know, start there. We know that reflexes are triggered by sensory information in the environment, and the purpose of a reflex is to provide a baby with an internal alarm system to protect himself or herself from danger. It's sort of Mother Nature's firewall, right? So there are several reflexes that integrate, which basically means disappear at various stages of development. But let's just look at one. Let's start with the morrow reflex, which is the startle reflex. When a baby is startled by a sudden unexpected loud sound or noise or even an unexpected touch, bright light or any sort of drastic change, the baby will assume this sort of behavior, thrust their arms in the air, take a sharp intake of breath, hold it for a bit, and then flex the arms and release the breath normally with extreme crying. So this is actually a neurological process and activation of what we call the fight, flight or fright response. And it actually releases an excessive amount of neurotransmitter, cortisol and adrenaline i.e. the stress chemicals. So babies who are often referred to us in OT, when these reflexes become fully integrated, they don't need us. But what happens is sometimes these reflexes don't become integrated. So they should around six months of age. And if they don't become integrated, then it impacts the child's play because they're in this perpetual morrow reflex or startle reflex, a constant state of hyper arousal, which, you know, obviously it's like when you are confronted with, with a lion or something, you're not going to be worrying about learning and development, you're, you're just surviving. And that's where some of these children end up staying and therefore impedes their learning um, and developmental process. However, we do agree that the environmental experiences then do change and shape the child's behaviors. Okay, good. So while many behaviors that a baby is born with are reflexive, uh, I think we both agree that babies quickly adapt to their environment. This is what a behaviorist will call conditioning or learning. B.S. Skinner referred to two types of process, so contingencies of survival and then contingencies of reinforcement. This is what you've referred to there as reflexive or unlearned behaviors. But then a behavior analyst can identify two types of conditioning, respondent conditioning, which I'll go into, or operant conditioning is what we would call it. Oh, just a moment. So I just want to clarify this for the audience. So are reflexes more of a respondent behavior? Yeah, let's let's take, for instance, the reflex or unlearned behavior of rooting. Presumably that reflex evolved as a survival mechanism as babies, you know, needed to have efficient reflexes that would result in them finding food and obtaining nutrition and therefore surviving. That is an unlearned behavior present to optimize the location of food. However, very quickly, a baby could associate signals that occur immediately before it engages in routing, say, for instance, the sound of its mother's voice or the pressure applied to a baby's head, for instance, to turn it towards a breast or a bottle, which reliably signals the delivery of food. 
or what we would call Pavlovian or respondent conditioning. And subsequently, upon the baby engaging in that routine, the delivery of warmth and milk and other stimuli that may then condition as reinforcers in themselves. So now there is a complex pattern here of learning around something that is unlearned and reflexive. So Mandy, just so we're on the same page here still, environmental factors and interactions have, you know, a huge impact on early learning. How does this apply to preemies in the NICU or neonatal setting? Yeah, I think this is, you know, a significant impact, of course, because these babies are exposed to, you know, a very potentially stressful environments. Research with neonates is Obviously very challenging um, because of the availability of babies for studies, particularly, you know, premature babies, and the ability to put them in environments that are not impacted by, you know, visual or auditory distractions, and that would impact, you know, the uh, assessment of interventions. But there have been studies that have looked at neonatal behaviours such as social behaviours and behaviours involving limbs, movement of arms and hands and legs. And as early as 1910, you know, looked at very early learning. And in particular, one controversial study called the Little Albert Experiment was published in 1920. Since that study was done, ethical guidelines have changed a lot. So it's very unlikely that this study would proceed today. But the study looked at how the question of fears or phobias condition in infancy or what we would call Pavlovian conditioning. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to pause. <laughs> I need to push the pause button, our very first one. Right, um, go ahead. So pause. Here is where all OTs, I just don't want them to go off the deep end because I think a lot of allied health professionals in general, we all know about classical conditioning and Pavlov dogs. However, there is some hesitation to transfer this a, a its applicability to human behavior. And so since this is a bit of an incendiary point of view, I'd ask my fellow OTs to hang on a minute and pause all those emotions that might be evoked. And we will sort this out hopefully in future episodes. Thank you, Mandy, for being patient. Please continue where you left off. Okay, Didi, I'll re-push the play button. The Little Albert study looked at how fear conditioned in a baby to a white rat when loud noises were made as Albert reached for the rat, when in baseline he'd been very happy in the presence of the rat. The baby cried and uh, attempted to retreat from the rat after the conditioning. And then when exposed to a white rabbit, a dog, and even a Santa Claus mask, he cried incessantly and showed a generalisation to similar objects to the white rat. Classical conditioning could account for many responses that infants uh, develop early on when paired with stimuli such as milk and warmth during feeding. Primary reinforcers such as things like mother's eyes, blankets, nursery rhymes, being sung to, smiles, etc. So this could account for those conditioning up as reinforcers. It seems like a good place to start to account for very early learning and future episodes on sleep coming up. And while the full effects around that study are not fully known, it was going back to 1920 when that study was published. For example, you know, did little Albert ever recover from those phobias and fears that condition up? Poor little Albert. But 
Yeah, but plenty of later studies were shown to be able to unpair those stimuli, direct conditioning, um, associating pleasant experiences, and thereby eliminating those phobias. So there is good news for babies that have developed uh, fears and phobias of how to unpair those stimuli and um, and create pleasant experiences around them. So to get us started, Dee, let's look at um, an OT's perspective in neonates. And I'll try and perform some magic by summarising like a hundred years of science in a few short minutes without losing the complexity of this early account of learning. Oh gosh, no small feat indeed. But I do think that's one of the challenges of doing this podcast. We're forever trying to find that balance of too much, too little or too soon, which offers a nice segue into the sensory system of preemies. The best way for me to explain sensory processing in preemies is to ask you, can you imagine, Mandy, going to sleep and waking up in the middle of a Katy Perry concert? I absolutely can because I have been to my fair share of Katy Perry concerts, actually, um, amongst <laughs> screaming children, my own daughter included. So, yes, I can imagine that. Maybe not the exposure to needles and other things that occur in Premier Wars, but I can imagine, you know, the um, extreme exposure to, yeah, to loud noise and, and sudden movements. Yeah, so it's all about that extreme perception of all the sensory stimuli that's coming at you, right? So at a concert, it's loud and it's really dark, so it's hard to get a visual acuity there and just chaos, right? That's exactly how a preemie infant feels. It's all too much too soon. So you and I, as an adult, we can habituate to this type of information. You know, we can sort of get used to it. We have a very mature sensory system, but preemies are especially can't do so. And so they're in this perpetual shock and high alert um, biologically. So in the the, um, NICU or neonatal unit, OTs work a lot of time incorporating a model of, it's called the neuroprotective care model, where all we do is we help babies regulate and manage this sort of uh, sensory information, modulating it um, so they can function and grow and learn in their environment. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on, I'm about to invoke my first pause button here, Aditi, because this is where my behavior analytic friends might have one of those moments and might say, how do you assess that? How do you know that's occurring? How do you know it's that's what's causing it? In other words, how do you look here at the difference between what is a learned behavior and an unlearned behavior? Oh, gosh, you do like to ask me hard questions. So... <laughs> In our perspective, it is it is very convoluted, intertwined sort of conglomerate of experiences, right? And it's not as linearly as you've stated. I think that's my favorite word for ABAs is linear because I use it a lot. So for me to fit things into these two categories of unlearned versus learned, and I know I'm going to be oversimplifying this, but our view might be Learned behavior occurs through experiential learning, while unlearned is more of a combination of biology and sensory experiences that occurs very early on. So I mean like fresh out of the oven, right? Very early on when the baby first comes out, well before they've had any opportunity to have any experiences that are learned or reinforced. 
the very, very first sensations is what I'm talking about. Movements, reflexive patterns, you know, baby moving her arms randomly, opening and closing her hands. These are all unlearned and somewhat reflexive. And so our assessment starts with comparing a typical response for a baby to an atypical response related to sensory information. So for example, a baby who is a few hours old, or even a day old, and has not really had a lot of opportunities to learn from the experiences as yet, these typical infants uh, would find touch soothing and want to be held. You know, that sort of Johnson and Johnson moment is what I think about. Touch should not lead to increased inconsolable crying, recoiling behaviours. And also in the neonatal unit, we see quantitative results of this type of input. So when a baby is touched and they are somewhat defensive to it, we see an increase in heart rate, respiration. So this is not a typical response. And as time goes on there, uh, experiential learning does occur. So that's where it becomes really convoluted and you can't figure out you know, which one started first. But our starting point I do think is vastly different between behavior therapists and OTs, but we do end up at the same point of learned behaviors through experience. Yes, Aditi. And remember in our last episode when we spoke of failures to thrive, where in some cases there may not be any medical reason um, why a child is not uh, taking sufficient food. Um, And this is where we could hypothesize that classical conditioning and operant conditioning or avoidance could have resulted in a negative experience around feeding or avoiding negative experiences by not feeding. So feeding a baby is a complex and sometimes stressful event involving, you know, highly sensitive breasts on, on a, a, a parent's, a mother's account, baby's mouths, etc. And then when you add in things like sleep deprivation or other children, partner arguments, etc., this is where behavioral accounts of learning makes sense to the interventions that you spoke of. And this is where behavioral scientists in the world of research use experimentation to determine what is the cause of problems not what one hypothesized is causing the problem. And so while your assumption in your case, in the premier example, is possibly that a baby is feeling too much too soon, there is actually no way of knowing what's actually causing the problem under treatment, you know, without experimentation. So crying and screaming, recoiling even, can be caused by a multitude of medical problems or, you know, learned by the infant to respond to its environment. So I... Is it necessary to call it sensory pain or is it just pain, Aditi? Alternatively, could the screaming be maintained by someone making the infant more comfortable after the screaming and therefore reinforcing that behaviour? So when you say, for instance, poor processing of pain, how does an OT assess that a baby is experiencing that? So my answer is yes, <laughs> because it's all of the above. I mean, because we we really do take a very holistic view, Mandy, in OT. That is what we're trained to do. We are not just, I mean, and maybe that's part of the problem, but I, I also think that's why it makes us open to be willing to look at other angles. We see that pain can obviously happen, you know, manually and induced externally in the environment for a baby, right? Like um, the needles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But they're also intrinsically inside the body, the sensory pain receptors, they could be over-responsive. Wait, 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 Aditi, I need to use that pause button again. 
And I have a confession, and I think possibly many of my behavioural friends out there might have the same response as me at this point, that the use of the word sensory evokes for us, you know, one of those pain points, and that is perhaps our history around sensory integration and interventions used in autism early intervention. Okay, I will press play. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) There is no way to know, I agree with you, what's causing the discomfort. You know, is it intrinsic or extrinsic? So we as OTs aim to hit it from all angles. We try to address the problem as it could be all of the above. So based on the fact that researchers have found that children affected with sensory issues have quantifiable differences in brain structure, we know that there is a biological basis for sensory processing differences, which can lead to poor processing of sensory information and in turn results in atypical perceptions of pain and discomfort. So under a typical condition, you know, maybe a typical lighting that's found in a nursery, a baby would not find that uncomfortable, right? A newborn. But often we see uh, babies in the neonatal unit, preemies, who are under distress in these typical conditions. And so we have designated protocols to address that problem if it is a problem. So we use low lighting, deep touch. We have these protocols to lessen the perceived painful experiences for the infant so they can thrive in the environment. So it might be more of a proactive measure in your point of view, but we are also very aware of external experiences and traumas that can influence an infant's behavior. But we know it more at more of an epidermal sort of surface level. And I think we could really understand a lot from behavior analysts in this area. But generally speaking, OTs spend a lot of time ameliorating all types of painful experiences, whether it's physical pain of needles or sensory pain where the sensory system is over responsive to information in the environment. And is there a possible parallel here, Mandy, or I might be reaching here, but is there a possible parallel to what we do as OTs in the NICU with preemies and classical conditioning? Are we in a way trying to prevent the infant from associating, you know, sensory information like touch sounds with negative responses? Yeah, I absolutely think there is some parallels here. There's a number of processes that you've described there that um, a behavior analyst could use as well. It's certainly what we would call desensitization, the behavioral process of desensitization, as I referred to earlier, that followed many studies after the little Albert study of unwinding the effects of condition stimuli and exposing, you know, babies to pleasantries in the presence of those stimuli and so yes I think the difference is how we measure what we do and I think maybe the best way to address this so we can show our differences and highlight our interventions and you know what we would do is propose a case study and this is a study that you know very similar to something that both of us would have been exposed to in the past and been asked to provide advice and intervention on. So Aditi, do you want to describe what that case study is that we were, we're going to talk about? Yeah, brilliant. So we talked um, earlier on about case study of Stella, who is nine months old. She's actually a premature baby born three months early. So she's 12 months, but developmentally poor training skills comparative to a nine month 
old. She is in the, or she was in the neonatal unit for approximately three months and is currently receiving therapy in the home setting. So, a little background on her skill set. She has difficulty with breastfeeding and is now mainly bottle fed. The reason for the referral is she's not maintaining eye contact, no imitation skills, not sitting up independently, and not reciprocating a smile or seeking comfort from her mum. She is now not able to hold her bottle, reach for toys, and actually gags or cries at the sight of certain toys um, that might be loud or have noise and light. So that's uh, a little bit about Stella. What would you see when you got that type of referral, Mandy? Okay, so uh, you mentioned there a, a variety of behaviours, seeking out toys, uh, maintaining eye contact, imitation, tolerating light, light up toys. They are all behaviours that uh, we can define separately and definitely intervene on. Perhaps we could choose this one to look at there. Let's let's talk about tolerating touch. This is uh, certainly an invention that I have done many times before. Uh, how? Let's start with how you or an OT would describe or define that. Sure. So again, we would base it on you know typical versus atypical for a nine month old, and touch from mum should not feel painful or feel uncomfortable in any way. So I would probably base it on report from mum and observation. And what we're seeing would be defined as tactile defensiveness, which is a pattern of observable behavioral and emotional responses, which can be aversive and negative and out of proportion to certain types of tactile stimuli that most people would not find painful. That is a direct quote from Royan and Lane in 1991. So that's really the definition of tactile defensiveness. Again, it's um, comparing typical versus atypical. So for Stella, as an OT, if we're just looking at touch, my long-term goal might be that Stella will demonstrate decreased tactile defensiveness by tolerating being cuddled and held by a family so she can participate in bottle feeding, for example by her parent. And my process would start by using data from parent questionnaire, the sensory profile, which is a set of norm reference standardized questionnaire designed to assess the sensory processing patterns and behavior of children. So based on that, I would get sort of a preliminary baseline score on Stella's tactile processing specifically. And in the sensory profile, the the rating is like, is it typical or is there a definitive difference? And if I find a definitive difference, then I would obviously observe and then plan an intervention accordingly. So questions I might ask mum are, you know, how long does she cry or how often does this happen? But we don't typically take data per se on that. These might just be qualitative questions we ask. Okay, and this is where we start to show up, you know, a very different approach between occupational therapy and behaviour analysis. Firstly, in relation to the definitions of behaviours, rather than using a standardised definition, we would make a very specific or define the behaviour that we were observing very specifically so that everybody observing Stella would be able to, you know, observe the behaviour and say whether it was occurring or not. And secondly, then, how to measure it. 
stay tuned though for episodes in the future because we're going to look at bridging the gap between what an OT takes as data so some of those norm reference data or questionnaires for instance as well and what a behavior analyst calls data we are definitely going to come back to that because this is a big divide in our field and a cause I think for a breakdown in communication between us but for now Let's define the behavior that we want to teach Stella and set a goal for when we know that Stella has achieved that. Let's define it as Stella's mother being able to place both hands on Stella with the absence of screaming or recoiling from touch. And if we were going to go ahead and intervene on that to teach that behavior or have that behavior put in place, first of all, we would take baseline data to assess how frequently Stella was crying in the presence of that behavior, both hands being put on Stella. We could use lots of different measures for that. We could use frequency or we could use latency. In other words, how long is it between when hands are placed on Stella and the time for Stella to cry? Or we could take duration data of how long Stella cries in the presence of hands being put on her. And then we could measure, you know, how long it is that Stella's actually tolerating touch so we can decide what we're going to shape. And we would define a target behavior that we are wanting to achieve. For instance, if Stella is not even allowing touch for any period of time, zero seconds without crying, we're going to have to shape and reinforce brief intervals of time to strengthen that behavior and improve behavior over time. And until such time as she accepts being held by her mother, for instance, during, say, a full feeding session in the absence of crying. So, you know, we would very clearly define what we're teaching. We would develop an intervention to have her accept touch during a certain interval and then provide reinforcement for Stella accepting that touch. For instance, the provision of her bottle or hugs, singing, things that we know that Stella finds pleasant to increase the amount of time that Stella tolerates touch. And in the event that she cries, we ensure that we are not reinforcing that crying, for instance. This is where our two interventions might differ, uh, Aditi, and certainly our measures would differ. So how might you start that intervention? Well, I think the goal of uh, intervention in OT would be habituation, right, which is Mm -hmm. repeatedly exposing to stimuli so that creates a sense of familiarity. And the more familiar um, the baby becomes with the stimuli of touch and the more they start to like it and then the more previous hostile and noxious emotions associated with that fade away but also from a sensory perspective we hypothesize that by doing that we are creating sensory pathways that are tolerable to the system and perhaps we're not there but that's essentially what the goal would be and so now I I do want to say that you know I'm just one OT with one experience sure so OTs may we don't have a standardized process for this so I may do it a certain way and somebody else might do a different way my sense would be I would tell mom let's first of all swaddle Stella so that she gets some depression see if that makes a difference and then I would ask her you know why don't you just start by doing deep touch massage to Stella's leg 
one leg, you know, have one leg exposed and do that. That would probably be where I would start. Good. And how would you prescribe for mum how much or what the duration of this intervention should be? So I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm just being honest. I don't sure. think I've ever thought about it that way. I, you know, I would probably just say, I mean, I might tell her, you know, try this for, you know, 10 minutes, but I certainly haven't put my brain in that time frame of going, okay, we're going to start with this amount of time. So this may be something that we could do better in OT. I know a lot of my OT colleagues and I have discussed this previously that if we were to streamline how we address sensory issues, and I think the problem there, that there's several issues, but you know, sensory is not a one size fits all. So it's, it's hard to do that. But if I have a documentation of what I've tried, and like you mentioned, duration, latency, all that, then if I have another baby like Stella that I encounter, I could that might be a, a nice benchmark for me. But I like what you said about taking data on Stella's condition, specifically just Stella, right? For her, this one case, what is your starting point? And then I think that would help me figure out how to change things and also replicate things, I think. So to answer your question, we don't do that. And I think that's one of the gaps in our intervention. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe just coming back to cause, you know, you describing us as linear, you know, I'm very aware that uh, we don't want to come across as, as being that. But at the end of the day, we really care about whether, just, just as you do, whether what we're prescribing is working or potentially is it making it worse. And I guess I speak both from... Uh, you know, a parent account and a therapist account in that I've been on, you know, I've, I act in both cases is that I think we can empower parents if we make it very specific what we're asking them to do and teach them to take data to see if what we're prescribing is worsening or, um, making it worse because many times it could be worse but you don't know because you don't have the data so you know for instance let's take what would you do if Stella cried during the intervention that you had recommended to mum well this would depend on the parent so if mum says to me okay I did what you said and Stella cried for an hour afterwards I couldn't you know calm her down I I don't think I can do this which happens often, and it depends on the parents. Some parents can handle it, others can't. And also depends on how long Stella would cry. I would probably say to mum, because I'm in, you know, saving mum mode, is, you know, do something to calm her down. You know, what works normally? Does a bottle help her calm down? Then I would say give her a bottle, which now, listening to you, I know that's not probably the right thing to do because I'm reinforcing some behavior somewhere, but that may be part of the problem. Yeah, well, you know, in later episodes, we are going to look at reinforcement and, you know, what we know in our science can improve or worsen a behavior. And that is something that occurs immediately after the behavior. If something pleasant occurs immediately after behavior, it's likely to occur again. If something unpleasant occurs immediately after behavior, it's un 
less likely to occur again. That's a very obvious statement, but there is, that's where our science, you know, adds a lot of value. So, you know, in Stella's situation, I guess what I would do is prescribe something that a parent could, you know, do consistently and provide her with data sheets to, to ensure that she had an intervention to trial. And if on first recommending that intervention, crying occurred, I would ask her to record what occurred, what happened before, what the behaviour was, what Stella's behaviour was, and what the consequence for that is. So I can determine whether, you know, we were um, reinforcing crying and behaviour or whether the behaviour that we were trying to teach was, you know, too much. So I would then, if it if it was, so we were asking, for instance, for her to tolerate touch for 20 seconds and crying was occurring, we could recommend a lesser amount of time and start to reinforce that behaviour in the absence of crying by providing, for instance, praise and hugs and possibly a bottle contingent on accepting a small amount of touch for the absence of crying. And I can prescribe to the parent, okay, let's try 20 seconds and then record whether crying occurred or not. Um, I would demonstrate that for the parent through what we call behavioural skills training and teach her to take some data so that I could determine whether what she was doing was improving or worsening the behaviour. But the key to, you know, all learning from a behaviour analyst perspective is, you know, something that happens after a behaviour can strengthen it or weaken it. And in this case, we're looking at strengthening, you know, tolerating touch. So in later episodes, we're going to look at this process of shaping behaviour, the concepts of reinforcement, and, you know, identify what it is that might be making a behaviour better or worse, and how to deliver that reinforcement contingent on behaviour that you want to see more or less of. So that's exciting ahead because I think we both have something to offer each other here in terms of some of the interventions you use. And I know there are, st- there are things that you have already recommended that um, have, you know, are adding to the tools that I can use when I'm um, dealing with challenging behaviour. On the other hand, I feel like behavioralists have a lot to offer in terms of measuring the effectiveness of what we do. And I love there that you mentioned parent empowerment because that is my, you know, real area of, I guess, um, love. And that is having parents be able to work with their children effectively. So let's move on. I think we had um, a, a lot of that we can learn from each other there. And next week, we're going to go on to talk about another S word, Aditi. And behavioural analysts out there, it's not what you think. It's sleep. We're going to delve into the sensory and behavioural aspects of sleep in infancy. I can't wait for this episode. If you have a client or even a child of your own who might be struggling with sleep, uh, you don't want to miss this episode. Uh, We're going to look at sleep challenges in infancy and later on, in a later episode, we're going to discuss Patrick Fryman's Bedtime Pass, which I have used with a lot of success, and I absolutely love that sleep intervention. We'll be also launching our first deeper dive on sleep interventions, and specifically, how to use the Bedtime Pass protocol. Exciting times ahead of Dee Lots to learn. Oh, gosh. I am so excited about the deeper dive, you know, where we can really talk about a very specific and succinct issue and um, address it from a behavioral and OT perspective. 
Brilliant. All right, lovelies, send us your questions on cases, and specifically for this one on speech.、Uh, please do send us your questions and comments on Facebook. Our goal is to provide you a dual perspective on sleep from both a behavioural and sensory perspective. But we need your help. We need to know what are your questions. What are the the issues that are currently happening in your practice, so we can address it from both ABA and OT perspective. Please do join our Facebook group because you will have access to. Our resources,、uh, common terms for ABAs and OTs for this episode, and we will also share some latest research. Overall, please do leave us a review. I know it takes a little bit of time, but please do. It's so imperative to our growth and our collaboration. And I guess that's where I want to add my fine print disclaimer here. I am one OT with one set of experiences, and while I do my best to review the literature and garner from my colleagues and professionals, I certainly don't know anything. More than the typical OT, and I would love any feedback and corrections or guidance, anything that you feel I should know. So please do do leave us a review and reach out to us if you can shed any light on anything we've discussed. All right then, remember, you, me, ABA OT, we are all the most valuable resource we have. Each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So, hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye bye from the Windy City and Huru from Dananda. Down